Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. In part two of our three-part Australian Investors podcast mini-series on ethical investing in Australia, sponsored by Australian Ethical, the leader in ethical managed funds and superannuation, I'm joined by Mike Murray, CFA. Mike is the head of domestic equities at Australian Ethical. In this conversation, Mike walks us through the investment pillar of Australian Ethical's process. We talk about business models, including repeatability, scaling, gross margins, and capital intensity. In all honesty, we get a little nerdy and dive into valuation, expected returns, and risk management for investors. In this conversation, Mike shares the secrets behind companies like Cochlear Limited, Downer, and Fisher and Paykel. If you want to know what makes great companies great investments, this is the episode for you. Before I ask Mike for his best ever investment, here's a quick note. Please remember that this episode is part two of our three-part miniseries, Ethical Investing in Australia. In part one, I spoke with Dr. Stuart Palmer, Head of Ethics Research, and we set the scene for this chat with Mike. So if you go thinking, mm, maybe I'm a little lost, just go back and listen to part one first. Part one should be available in your podcast player, and I've included a link in the show notes. Without further ado, here's Mike Murray, Australian Ethical's Head of Domestic Equities, answering my very first question, what is the best investment you've ever made? Oh, look, I'm, I'm going to sort of... Um say Australian ethical shares below a dollar when I joined Australian ethical in, in oh, right. about six years ago. And, you know, they're sort of currently around the $9 level. I put a little bit of money into Australian ethical at that point. So um, that's, that's been a, a great one. Wow. Yeah. Well, I've just checked it. Um, $8.96 at the time of recording. So that's a, what's that, an eight or a nine bagger. So um, you're sitting pretty on that one. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's 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 certainly been a good one. Um, so you know the business is. I think you you will have followed the company. You know, obviously it's um, it's going really well. So it's an exciting time to be part of it. Yeah, for sure it is. And um, mm. that's a, one of the things that we spoke about with with Stuart was that it's it's great because as um, Australian Ethical is publicly listed, investors can look at the company and see what the company's doing, but also then become investors in in uh, whether it's inside super or outside of super. Um, okay. Now that I've given you the easy one, that's the, the softball. The hard one is what's the worst investment you've made? Look, I, I'm going to give you one that, that sort of, you know, you have those investments that sort of stay with you. I don't know if it's the worst investment I've ever made, but I remember in the early 2000s, we invested in a company that's no longer listed called Main Nicholas. Um, and they were an old, right. old hospital kind of conglomerate um, run by a guy called Peter Smedley. Um, and it, it was one of those stocks that, you know, I, it was a real lesson, lesson to me as an, as an earlier um, or a junior sort of analyst because um, the company came out with a very bullish guidance and I placed a lot of conviction in their guidance and they subsequently retracted that guidance very quickly. And I remember the stock mm. sinking like a stone and that sort of sick feeling. And, and you know, it was just, I guess it was a, it was a, it was a good lesson. Um, and I think one of the things that happened in that, in that particular situation was the company had actually misunderstood its customer base. It was running hospitals and it was and almost and it thought that the the patient was the customer really in their case it was the doctor who was the mm. customer and they really went off track so that was a, a blast from the past hey i might just follow up on that mike mm. what do you mean by the doctor was the customer well if you think about a, a, a hospital business um obviously hospitals are a business as well as providing mm. a you know a great social good um really how do they make money they make money by filling their operating theaters um 
or, or managing capacity utilization effectively sure. and they're op building operating theaters and then um, bringing doctors in to utilize those theaters. Um, and so what May Nicholas did is it, it sort of thought, well, we're gonna cut the costs um, of all those sort of supplies um, that we provide those doctors with. Yeah, and we're gonna tell, right. tell them, uh, we're gonna run this in a very with a very commercial mindset. Um, and I guess there was another lesson in that situation because it was about companies also need to have some sort of a social purpose or a positive impact. You can't just run a, run a hospital as though the only thing that matters is the bottom line. Um, you actually have to run it um, as an entity that's looking after all, all, all stakeholders. Um, and the doctors actually revolted in that case. And, you know, it caused a lot of damage to the business. And, you know, I'd contrast that with a, a company like Sonic Healthcare, which has obviously been a you know extremely successful company, but it's always put um, sort of clinical excellence, um, you know, at, at the forefront of what it's done. Mm, fascinating. Okay, I, I haven't thought about it in that way. Is that the doctors are actually the customers? Okay, great. The third question I wanted to to fire away at you is uh, who is the investor that you read the most? Yeah, look, I I don't read a lot of investment books. Um, hmm. I, <laughs> I, I kind of have the view that it's better off working on a, a sort of a specific opportunity or like, you know, picking up an annual report and really getting to grips with the situation mm. just because investors, investment is such a dynamic thing um, and every every case is different, right? So, you, I mean, we've all kind of read some of the classics, you know, the Benjamin Grahams and the Warren Buffetts and things. Um, but from the, once I think once you've got the fundamentals, um, I prefer to try to try to apply it to a specific situation. Um, something I do do a lot is talk to my uh, colleague, Andy Gracie, who runs the Australian Shares Fund. Mm. Um, and we spend a lot of time just, um, I guess, as he does with other members of the team, debating ideas, thinking about ideas, um, reflecting on different management teams. Um, and that, that's quite a sort of an intuitive process. But I did bring along one book that I thought was quite interesting to share with you. Mm -hmm. I read this book called The Art of Performance by a guy called Josh Weitzkin. Um, and I think that's an interesting book because the guy was a chess champion um, and they went on to make a movie about him. Um, and then he became a martial arts champion. And he wrote this book about how to apply mm. different, different methods of learning and wow. different types of learning to different situations. Um, so I, that, that's an example of a book that's, that's influenced me. Yeah, right. Okay. I've never heard of it. That's fascinating. Um, and I'll, put, I'll find it online and put a link in the show notes. Um, it, it's, it's really interesting because you're basically, what, if I could paraphrase, correct me if I'm wrong here, basically what you're saying is, spending time focusing on developing that pattern recognition of companies and identifying what works with business models and, and people rather than spending more time on like the strategy and the kind of the theory behind it. Yeah. Well, look, I think I, I clearly, clearly the theory of evaluation um, and company fundamentals is, ve is very, very important. Mm. Um, so I, I don't want to downplay that, um, but I guess that there's two, there's two things that are really happening in analysis. There's a sort of systematic, um, approach to analysis um, and you see you, you do need those fundamental tools um, but then you know it, you, you, you do also need that um, sort of gut feel intuition um, you need a bit of bravery um, because very often in this game things go wrong you know it's very mm. rare that you know you buy something at exactly the right time um, often it goes wrong before it goes right and so you, you do have to through time if you don't have them innately develop some of those um, those traits or, or hopefully you get them from a team environment too. You have team members that are, mm. are kind of pointing you in the right direction when you might be getting shaky on something or losing conviction on something. But it is a, it is a dynamic game. Um, and I think it's just something we're trying to get better at all the time. There's no, there's no sort of magic formula to investing mm. in, in my view. Mm. It's, uh, so I'm gonna, this is a perfect segue into our next question, which is basically asking how you came to be involved in Australian ethical and um, knowing the rules of the game are really important. And I note that, 
uh, you're a CFA charter holder, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So how did you come to be involved then um, with Australian Ethical? As, as an aside, when I did my CFA, I think there were 20 people doing them in Australia. Oh, wow. so okay. it, um, well, and I'm so not even when, that old. Well, I don't think when I'm I, when I, that old. When I sat for, <laughs> I, this was before COVID, in the stadiums that did level one, I think there would have been two or 3,000 at least. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't least, it? It's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so how did, how did I end up here? So, look, he, here's the irony, right? My first job was at a place called uh, UBS Brinson in about 1996 as, mm-hmm. as a graduate analyst on, on the buy side. Um, and I was given the tobacco and gaming sector <laughs> uh, to cover. Um, and, look, you know what? I just really hated it. Um, and, and it just seemed to me that, you know, you, you had these companies here that were just preying on people. Um, and even, you know, you could go and meet with the management teams um, you know, I, I think we even had a listed tobacco company here at the moment, Rothmans, if I recall. You know, when you go and meet with them and, you know, the whole presentation would be how to get people to smoke more um, or how to get people, you know, in the gaming analogy, how to get people to play more poker, poker machines in areas where they could least afford it. Um, and look, I re- it really didn't gel with me. Like, um, I, loved, I loved being an analyst, but I, I, I didn't like being part of that process. And the funny thing was I went back, actually went back to uni and did some, some postgraduate work and just wanted, wanted to sort of, you know, decide where, where I wanted to head. And um, I did some time in management consulting. And then it, it ha- happened in the early 2000s, AMP Capital was setting up a, um, an ESG fund. And it was, you know, Australian Ethical, obviously been around in the ethical space yeah. for a long time. Um, but this was, you know, it was a big play by a major, what was a major institution, sadly, sadly mm-hmm. no more, but at that point in time. Um, and, and I couldn't believe that this opportunity existed or even this, this industry existed. Mm. You know, I was just so excited to, to get in there on the ground floor and I was there for, for nine years and, you know, it was really formative for me. Mm. Um, I think it's, yeah, like you said, quite ironic that you started on that side of the fence and quickly pivoted. And, and this is where you've spent the majority of your time. I noticed on your LinkedIn profile, it's got you for decades, basically focused on, on this type of investing and, and ethical investing, generally speaking. Um, we had Stuart on the show who talked about the kind of the two pillars of the Australian ethical process. One being obviously the ethical research, which, mm. which he and the team are working on. And then there's more the, the kind of the traditional investment side um, after you get that universe. Mm. So I'm, um, I'm maybe to start things off. Um, do you believe that active ethical and investment management is is a, the the best combination for Aussie mm. equities? Mm. Yeah, look, I I I I hesitate to say the best because, like, I think in in everything, right? There's different ways of winning. Um, it mm. certainly served us at Australian Ethical very well over a long period of time, um, and and I think we're really good at it. Um, and and look, I think. Um, you know, the first thing you kind of got to acknowledge is that, you know, you're trying to do two things at once. So it's, it's quite different um, to, to conventional investment management in, in, in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got, you know, quite a different universe, for example, um, than, than a, a conventional investment manager. Um, and now that can, that can help be helpful. It can kind of push you into some, some of the right sort of areas and right sort of companies that can help you manage some of the risks um, that, you know, that your, other people may not be seeing. Um, but you've also got to be a good investment manager, right? It's no good just saying, sure. okay, now I'm just going to pick a whole lot of ethical companies and sort of hope that they go up um, mm. through time. So, you know, we, we, we actually sort of have a, uh, quite, a bit of a, um, quite a bit of independence as well as collaboration between the ethics team um, and the investment team. And we think that's important from a governance point of view because what we don't want at the end of the day is the investment manager sort of saying, oh, well, I kind of like this company, therefore it's ethical, or the ethical team saying, oh, it's ethical, therefore invest. 
Um, mm. What we really want to do is find companies that meet our ethical charter and then within that universe, create a portfolio of companies um, that we think can outperform through time. Um, and so I, th I think there are a few other advantages that we get in this process because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you're restricting the universe, you're restricting the universe, mm. um, they're, they're, therefore, you know, it's not an optimal portfolio. But some things that are done for us is that we develop deep pockets of expertise in certain sectors. So we, we kind of know things like healthcare, uh, utilities, information technology really well. Um, I think it's pushed us away from always wanting to track a benchmark. You know, we know we've got this different universe. Mm, um, so we, we're pretty benchmark unaware in terms of our, uh, we are benchmark unaware in terms of our Aussie equity strategies. And so that, that's something that's really resonated with, it, with our clients. You know, they know what we stand for. They know that, that we're taking active risk um, as fund managers and, and we think they want us to take um, active risk. And, and probably the final thing I'd say is that it has probably pushed us outside that kind of top 20, uh, you know, names we've even got an emerging companies fund which invests outside the top 100 which has been really successful so we have we have kind of benefited i think in, in in a number of ways from that from that difference and you know we're, we're just proud of proud of being different and who we are yeah and i think um one of the things with this aussie equities is yes there are maybe say 2100 companies on the asx but if you exclude you know some of those sectors that are probably more prone to you know poor economics in terms of you know capital intensity and those types of things you can get that down to a manageable list but even then it's it's still a lot to work through so if you can develop that deep expertise in these industries like healthcare for example mm. you know is a very strong thematic right so that's a really interesting one um how about then i, I guess this is probably the ideal time to ask this question mm. um if an investor is sitting back thinking um well how does like the portfolio composition um let's say of the high conviction fund how does that mm differ to a traditional ASX 300 or ASX 200, you know, benchmark? Yeah, sure. And it's probably helpful to put it in context of our, our three domestic active equity strategies. Yeah, so our longest yeah. running strategy is the Australian Shares Fund, and that's a an all-cap fund. You know, it does invest quite extensively, you know, in, in, the, in the sort of X100 space um, as well as the top 100. Um, and that's, you know, that's got a 20-year track record. You know, it's got a really strong yeah, right. track record, and, and we're really proud of that. Um, and it's a very true-to-label fund. Um, run by Andy Gracie. And then, then the more recent fund was the Emerging Companies Fund. Um, and again, that's done really nicely for us and invests outside mm. um, the ASX 100. Um, and then, yeah, the latest fund we launched it on the 1st of October is, is the High Conviction Fund. We launched it as an unlisted trust on, on the 1st of October. And look, I, I would really position that as an extension of that capability we have um, in bottom-up Australian share investing. So really, you know, it's a fundamental product. It shares that sort of characteristic of being benchmark unaware and it shares that characteristic of being very true to label um, in an ethical sense. Where it's slightly different um, is it does kind of contain itself largely to the ASX 300. So we're trying to invest in slightly more liquid, um, slightly on slightly higher average market capitalization companies on average. And, you know, as per the name, high conviction, um, you know, it's a little bit more concentrated. Um, than the other strategies. So it's running about 30 stocks and, you know, our, our, our diversified Australian shares fund, or, you know, is running upwards of, of, of 60 stocks because um, it, it does have a sort of a, a longer tail and some of those smaller cap names. Mm. Um, and what that's allowed us, allowed us to do is um, launch the, you know, the, the new high conviction strategy as an ETF. Um, yeah. So we just launched that last week under the ticker AEAE on, on CBOE. And, and that's, that's a really exciting thing for us because, you know, a lot of people do like to invest with us directly and now they can invest with us directly on, on, the, um, on the exchange. 
Mm. Mm. And that's, I think this is a, an appealing feature of the ETF industries as well as we bring active funds into the mix. Um, we're seeing more uptake amongst investors and even financial advisors who prefer um, exchange traded products. So um, it's a really easy liquid way to get into a position like this. Um, I'm, I'm, we'll, we'll talk about the high conviction aspect of it in just a moment in terms of like portfolio composition and management and that type of thing. But let's, let's start with um, basically what you're looking for. I know that there are four pillars in the investment process because I got some slide um, docs ahead of time and, and I had a look through um, basically the, the, the process that you're following. And I know from the previous conversation with Stuart that we talk about you know excluding companies or including companies into the universe based on ethical uh, considerations. Mm. But I know that there are like there are these four uh, pillars or the, the investment merits that you you're waiting and you're judging these companies again. So I'm hoping you can step us through those one at a time, mm. and feel free to use examples as we go through because I think this is kind of like the meat in the sandwich of um, the investment strategy. I'm, I'm keen to drill into this. Yeah, that's great. Let me let me try to give you some e- examples of each of those. And and clearly, you know, there's no um there's no sort of secret sauce in business model, balance sheet, fundamental evaluation, expected return. These are core tools that you'll find at any fund manager, but I think, you know, really the it, it's all to do with how these are applied, you know, as part, sure. part of a process. Um, and so let me let me give you some things that we like, um, you know, just, just almost a laundry list of things that we like when we're looking at business models and we've learned these through time. And what, one of the very obvious ones is we like repeatability of earnings, right? Or, or what we call, you know, recurring earnings. So, um, you know, take a, a business, you know, we do a lot of work in the healthcare sector, um, take a business like Cochlear, is that a recurring um, revenue stream? Well, it has been through time, um, but a lot, a lot of that is coming from individual cochlear implants and new sales rather than, mm. um, you know, what, what they call the services part of their business. So it's earnings are actually dominated by the sale of implants. Um, mm. Now, if I compare that to Fisher and Paykel Healthcare, um, Fisher and Paykel Healthcare have a, have a much bigger percentage of revenue that's coming from consumables. So I would argue from, you know, I think they're both fantastic companies, but in some respects, Fisher and Paykel has a slightly stronger business model um, than, than cochlear from the point of view of repeatability. Um, and then, you know, you can, you can sort of take that analogy to other sectors where you might look at a, a contracting company that has one big contract that expires in three years. And, you know, I, I would say there's nothing really repeatable about that business, you know, and that they're the sort of businesses that we don't like. Um, a, sec- a second one in terms of business models is, you know, we think a lot about scalability. And this often has to do with, you know, a, a level of IP um, that a company has um, or the ability to get economies of scale. If you looked at one of the big um, supermarkets or in a technology company, you know, the ability to go offshore. Um, so, you know, a, an industry where I guess we don't think has has many economies of scale would be, for example, the aged care sector. We saw the aged care mm. sector list on the ASX with great, great promise, um, a lot of acquisitions and sort of roll-ups in that space. And it wasn't really clear that one plus one made more than two. Um, mm. And I think that's because, you know, really there are services style business um, and, and that's something that, you know, I guess in our process, we do tend to privilege product-oriented companies because we think right. product-oriented companies scale better than services. Um, and so, yeah, a company like Fisher and Paykel or Cochlear, I mentioned before, great product-oriented companies with global edges that have scaled really nicely. Um, that brings me to the third thing. Um, we like companies with high gross margins. Um, you know, we've certainly found that businesses with low gross margins um, you know, they, they can strike. I mean, this, it's certainly not the case for every company, you know, like a, um, you can be, you can be a, um, uh, you know, a big, a big uh, large scale retailer with low, low gross margins and do very well, but something like the healthcare space, um, we certainly like to see company with high gross margins. And then the final one is capital intensity. Um, so we're very aware of um, how much capital companies having to re, uh, reinvest in their business. 
um, where they are in that sort of cap capital journey and, you know, are we getting an appropriate return return on that capital? And Can I just look, ask I think, one question there, Mike? Yeah. Just on capital intensity, how would you measure that or even just get an insight into that? Look, a very, um, I mean, I, you could, for example, you could simply look at return on assets through time um, and, you know, uh, you certainly can you, you find uh, you, you can see a company that's growing its earnings but actually um, its return on assets is decreasing because it's deploying funds in a, uh, a suboptimal way um, I'll give you a counter example um, a company we've invested in the high conviction fund is um, downer um, more recently and and you know they used to be a mining contractor and that wasn't something that um, really uh, that they were excluded from our universe um, uh, under, under ethics charter um, they're no longer they're out of that business so they're within our our ethical universe but what we really like about this business is that the mining contracted business was also very capital intensive and so mm. the capital requirements in that business have fallen and so one of the things the other ways of, of measuring that i guess is just comparing a company's um, what i would call sustainable capex so you know a, a sort of a through the cycle normalized capital expenditure number against what they're recording as depreciation in their accounts. And, you know, in that case, they're recording uh, CapEx below their depreciation. So we think they're on the right side of that equation. Hmm. How about the second thing then, which is the, the balance sheet? Um, what are you in particular studying here to, to get this, to, you know, through to like, let's do further research on this? Yeah, sure. Look, um, and, you know, there's obviously a whole whole range of things. I mean, this thing about capital intensity obviously plays in, into balance sheet, right? Because a, a company mm. that has to spend a lot of capital um, to sort of re replenish itself, um, it, it, that's going to eat into the balance sheet through time. Um, and so I think what what the most probably the most important thing about looking at the balance sheet is not looking at it in isolation. Um, it's also looking at it in the context of, of the particular business and the particular industry. Um, and so, you know, I guess a very obvious example is obviously companies with lower degree of variability um, in, in their earnings um, can, can sustain a higher, a higher gearing. So something like an airport is a good example, although even COVID um, proved that wasn't necessarily the case. And, mm. you know, there was a situation where, where those companies were going to need, need additional capital. Um, so, yeah, so we look at the, um, at, at the business fundamentals, um, you know, how cyclical a business is, um, I guess, you know, if you're in a cyclical business and you're at the bottom of the cycle um, and, and the business is highly geared, well, maybe that's okay if you have a, have a strong degree of confidence that actually earnings are going to go up and we really are at bottom of cycle levels. Um, but, you know, on all things being equal, we do, like most people, we prefer companies um, that are more conservatively geared. We certainly don't like companies um, gearing up against what we would call um, sort of non-recurring revenue streams. We think that's a, um, mm. a, a recipe for disaster. Um, and, you know, you also got to look at, you know, the phasing of debt. And I think, you know, there'll be a lot of focus on that. And now we're talking about interest rates going up. Um, people want, will want to know very shortly um, how companies are, are hedging that debt and also what, what sort of pricing power do they have in their core business? Because if, your cost, if you've got a lot of debt uh, and your cost of interest is going up, then, you know, what you're going to need to do is be able to put your prices up. And if you can't, um, then you've got a problem. So there's some of the things we look at, you know, does the company own its property um, or not? Um, mm -hmm. You know, has the company taken very conservative provisions um, if, it, if it was a financial company? Um, we also look at things like, you know, apart from the sort of typical ratios like net debt to EBITDA uh, for a retailer, we might look at uh, fixed charges coverage ratios because um, those companies are often very reliant on, on operating leases in the, in the situation mm. where they don't, they don't own, own the property. Um, so they're just some, some, some examples. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that were found uh, during COVID with, with quite a lot of capital raising activity 
Um, and so like, a, you know, I've been giving you that, I'll just follow through on the cochlear example. Mm. Um, you know, they raised a lot of capital because they thought their business or their business was initially under pressure. Um, the business recovered more quickly than they expected. Um, and actually now they've got surplus capital, got net cash mm. on the balance sheet. And, um, you know, we certainly can find companies in the, at the moment, and we certainly always like them when we do that, you know, very high quality business models like cochlear, um, you know, in, in a sort of net cash position. And we, we think that's, that's quite, quite a strong position. Yeah, I remember that um, co- cochlear capital raise because it's quite substantial and it was very, very well supported. Mm, I thought mm. that it was very unique at the time, right? Because there, here's a company, I mean, it, unique being that uh, a credit to its, I guess, quality as a franchise and quality as, you know, a management team as well to be able to pull that off. So uh, yeah, great stuff. Uh, number three, which was uh, fundamental valuation. This is a question I like to ask because I think some people, particularly more aspiring investors, often come to investing more with the kind of scientific hat on and less of the kind of like the art, artistic hat on, meaning that yep. They, yep. they maybe think that uh, being a good investor is about being a great analyst and not necessarily, they kind of forget the investor part and just go straight to analyst and number mm. crunching spreadsheets, et cetera. So I'm interested to know how you and the team, uh, you know, arrive at valuations, if mm. you are beholden to them, how you go about that, anything that you can share there will, will be wonderful. Yeah. And look, and look, um, it's a really good point that you make about that difference between the sort of, um, systematic analyst approach and, and that sort of artistic or intuitive approach. And you definitely do see um, successful analysts um, coming from both ends of the spectrum. Um, so do, I don't, I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's one size fits all. Um, look, our, our primary valuation methodology is relatively simple and we, we, like, we like it that way. It's a PE that we adjust for um, what we perceive to be the risk of the business the growth uh, opportunity in the business um, and the duration of that growth. And we obviously try to normalize um, for the economic cycle and for anything else sort of one-off that's happening in the business. Or let's take, let's say that we think a company's um, undergeared, then we want to allow for the ability to re-gear that company through time or vice versa. If it needs a capital raise in the future, we want to allow for that in, in setting our EPS, which we then apply this sort of normalized PE to. Um, and look, really, that's just an approximation of a, of a DCF, you know, at the end of the day, a, um, a, PE, a PE that's adjusted in that way is sort of shorthand for a D, DCF. And, you know, in, in my mind, all these things are trying to, trying to get to the same fundamental principle, which is, you know, how much money is a company going to give back to you? Um, when are you going to get that money? And what's the risk of, of not getting it? Um, and so, you know, they're, they're coming at that problem, um, but P comes at it in a, in a very simple, simple way. Um, and so what we try to do is we have a core, a core valuation, what I'll call it an adjusted PER um, methodology so that we can compare companies uh, to right. each other. Um, but, you know, we're very cognizant that, for example, within a sector, there might be another uh, metric that's relevant to that sector. So I'll, I'll give the example of the financial sector uh, priced NTA. Um, you know, can be can be quite an interesting metric um, for a lot of the banks uh, and insurance companies. Um, and, you know, some people in the tech space like to look at EV to sales. Um, I know that, you know, some people are quite critical of that metric because they say that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't allow, you know, for businesses that might be loss making forever. But I think, there's, you know, there's an intelligent way um, to apply that ratio. Um, you know, if you, if you have an understanding of what sort of returns a particular model can deliver through time, again, it's just trying to, you know, let, let's say a company's trading on an EV to sales of five times, if you it might be able to justify that, if you know that it can deliver a 20% um, EBITDA margin through time, and you can convert that to sort of EV to EBITDA metric and, and compare it amongst companies. And, and that's something else that we do. Um, we certainly look at uh, peer 
peer comparative valuations. Um, so if we are looking at the tech sector, we're certainly you know very aware of where major US uh, tech companies are. Um, and you know, clearly it's, a, it's, it's something controversial at the moment because we're seeing a bit of a sell-off in the tech sector and uh, we do invest in that space. But, you know, it, in general, we're investing in companies that are, that are trading at sort of lower multiples than some, than some of those US uh, companies. So we think that gives us, gives us some buffer. Mm. Um, and look, the point of all this really, I think, is not, coming back to your original question, is not to come up with a perfect answer, but is to have an analyst ask intelligent questions um, and build conviction and level mm. of comfort in, in, in what they're recommending. I might just circle back, Mark, to one point that you touched on there. And I'm just going to paraphrase here and you can tell me where I went wrong, mm. which is that basically you're rebuilding an income statement because you're trying to get down to earnings mm. and you might forecast that out, sadly, mm. I'm guessing. And then you're, you're taking into account the risk of a business. When you, mm. I imagine you're discounting that back or like you have a future value in mind, like, mm price earnings ratio might be X in, you know, Y number of years. Um, when you think about the risk of a business in using that kind of technique, how are you thinking about that? You know, we're taught in academia to use things like CAPM and, you know, weighted average cost capital and involve like things like beta and all that sort of stuff. Are you thinking that way or are you thinking more like the business risk and what a business yeah. would reasonably trade at? Have that makes sense? Yeah, look, it does. And um, it's a really, really good question. Um, and the answer is that it, 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 it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, we do we do use a CAPM approach, um, but when we think about the risk in a business model, we're not just purely thinking about correlation to the market, which I guess yep. would be a very purist um, CAPM approach. Um, so you know it's very hard to kind of wrap all all of the risk characters up in a in a single number um, sure. that that resonates with people. And so you know you know you've got this idea that you know from some people that risk is um, you know, uh, correlation or, you know, a, a high degree of variability, sorry, not correlation, high degree of variability than the market. Yep. Um, other people will say, well, risk is, uh, you know, the risk of permanent loss of capital, um, which, you know, I, I think is, is a, you know, is a, is a fair, fair definition of risk. Mm. Um, and then you've also got things like, um, you know, okay, for the company's got balance sheet risk, um, or even if you've got management risk, or you think risk of making a stupid acquisition. Um, so you have all these sort of subjective variables um, and look, I think the key is to, you know, I, we, I, I probably prefer to see people having a real conviction on earnings rather than really moving models. I think if you, I think you can sort of um, get rid of some of the arbitrariness of this if you sort of constrain your risk assumptions within a, within a reasonable band and then really try to get a lot of conviction in your, in your earnings. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, some of this also gets pulled in at the portfolio construction um, phase because, you know, you'll have a you'll have an individual company that might be, um, you know, ranking very well in, in your, your particular valuation system. Um, but then, you know, when the portfolio manager comes and looks at it, says, oh, well, I've never liked that industry before. You know, I don't want to back it. Why is it going to be different this time? And so then he's sort of applying, applying a risk overlay, which again is fair enough, right? And, and unless you're a pure mm. quant manager, uh, most fundamental mental managers, even if I say that, it's doing some version of this, right? Because... Um, they're, they're incorporating risk in different ways, and it's not—it's not just as simple as um, pushing a you know a, a button on on a calculator. Um, mm. You know, you can you can certainly have a situation where a company has a very strong expected return, but it, you know it's subject to a huge binary um, trade-off. 
Uh, so in that kind of situation, you've got to adjust your position size because you don't want to have 10% of your portfolio in something that's going to be decided on, on a flip of a coin, even if on balance, if you can find 100 of similar situations, you're going to do well, but you can't because um, mm. most of them are different. Long-winded long answer, um, and no, I'm sorry, there's, I not like a, it. There's, not an exact, uh, there's not an exact answer on that one. No, because that's, that leads mm. us perfectly into the fourth um, point, which is expected return, and you, you've kind of brought it up there, um, mm. which is... I, I guess um, another way to express um, what we think about it you know, as analysts is like the discount rate is like the expected return is kind of what's our hurdle rate, in other mm. words. What do we need from this company or this investment in order for us to justify them making it? Is that how you you and the team think about it? Yeah, certainly. So as, as I said, we you know we apply a, a, a cap M approach with a with a beta, and so we're trying to get we are doing our best to get that in at that kind of valuation. Um, stage. So if we do think a company um, has, it, it's not as though um, we apply that afterwards. If we, if we think a company has an elevated risk profile, it will, it will get captured um, in that beta and that will lower the PE that we think is appropriate as it should to apply yeah. to that company. Because, you know, in theory, I'm just trying to think of, of an example, um, but, you know, co the contractor sector trades on a much lower PE than the healthcare sector. Um, mm. why, why is that? Because I guess there's a widespread perception that, you know, the earnings are less recurring. It's a higher risk sector um, through time. It's probably more variable um, in terms of a demand profile. Um, so, you know, another, I guess another way of approaching this is thinking, you know, through time, what sort of PEs is the market prepared to pay for this stock or sector? Is this always going to be a discount sector? Is it always going to be a premium sector? Or, you know, it might, it might be neither it might it might actually get a premium for good management like a company like macquarie or, or west farmers does even though they operate in in industries where you know you can certainly find peers that um that don't have the same pe ratios as, as those companies um do um so yeah like uh you know, I think I think that's how we try to do it. Um, we try to get it into the valuation as much as possible. Um, but then, you know, there's a, there's another piece that has to happen around portfolio construction after that. And you know, you've got we've got to look at every bet that we're taking in the context of, of the overall portfolio. Mm. And that 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 the perfect segue into it. So, um, because it's the high conviction fund, um, I think the the. It will just. I, I actually really like high conviction funds because I, I did a study ages ago when I was studying active managers, and I found that investors that take higher conviction bets tend to do better if they. But there's always you know the catch. They have to be good investors in the first place, but they should back themselves if they know that they are. And um, I'm interested to know how you go about position sizing. We've talked about like, like those fundamental factors. Are there some sort of rules that you have in place, like constraints around that? Mm. And um, I, I'm guessing there are because you're basically taking the Australian ethical investment process and rolling mm. that up into something that's high conviction. So there's probably something unique about it. Mm. Yeah, well, look, look, I guess the first thing, as I said before, is we, we are dealing with a different investment universe. Um, so you, you are going to have a, you're not going to look like everyone else just purely because like, for example, um, we, we, have a very uh, you know small investment in the resources sector and you know in the energy sector as you imagine most of the energy holdings at Australian Ethical are in New Zealand in the um, mm. sort of hydro and geothermal um, companies like Contact Energy over there um, and then you know if we, we look at the you know extractive resources uh, sector you know we have a very small small ability to sort of play in that sector and um, and and that's because of who we are and and what, and what we stand for so we are we are quite different. Um, and, you know, so one, one thing you are introducing, I guess, the technical term tracking error um, against, mm. against a, a benchmark um, once, once you sort of accept that. 
Um, so I think, you know, and then, when, then when it comes to the actual, let's sort of put the universe question to one side and then just look at the way we go about investing. Um, I think, you know, we, we are believers in active, that, you know, when people, you know, pay for active management, they should get active management. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really, and I think, you know, there's quite a few, historically there's quite a few funds out there that you sort of pay an active fee for and you kind of get for something sure. that looks quite like the benchmark. And funnily enough, you can even find it in the ethical space. It really worries me when you see it in the ethical space because, or the mm-hmm. ESG space, because you sort of go, well, you know, often, often, you know, you can, you, you really would expect that sort of portfolio to look quite different um, than, than, than the index. Um, and then, you know, as fund managers, when I look at across our team, um, we want, we're trying to, we want analysts to be able to express conviction, right? We think we've got the ability to add quite a lot of value. Why do we think that? Because we do have these deep pockets of expertise in our in our sectors. So, you know, I've been covering the healthcare sector for a long time. There's other people on the team have also covered healthcare, IT for a long time, financials for a long time. Um, and so we think if you can build up, and it's not, it's actually not just um, knowledge of the sector, it's also relationships, right? Um, sure. So, you, you, you know, yeah, you've got that point. longitudinal read on management teams. Um, and, and also, you know, that, that again, that sort of read on where businesses are and that very long term, you know, it could be 10, 20 year cycle. I mean, the, the irony about being a, a fund manager is you often you typically outlast the CEO, of the business that you're looking at. You, know, you may even see three or four <laughs> when things aren't, aren't going well. And so you, you, do, you do hear the same stories and different narratives and then back to the same narrative um, again. And so, like, we're real, real believers in the ability to add value from the bottom up. Um, and, you know, we do that, I think, by not necessarily doing it in the same way as everyone else or just looking at the top 20 or, or trying to hug, hug an index. When you ask me for rules, um, you know, like, for example, in the high conviction fund, you know, the maximum position size is about is 10%. I mean, any single stock, um, we, you know, typically uh, won't probably go that large. You know, the biggest position at the moment is about 6.7%. I think 6 to 7% um, is, is, a, is a reasonable size go at something. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not looking at the benchmark. So, you know, that could be, you know, a lot, there could be a lot of active risk in that position. You know, in a company like CSL, which has a big benchmark weight, zero weight at the moment, or BHP clearly zero weight, because it doesn't, mm. it's, it's not in line with our ethical charter. Um, so, you know, index weight doesn't determine where we see the, the, the greatest opportunities. Um, you know, I think to some extent, you know, if it's a very small cap stock or it's a binary outcome style stock, clearly that's not going to be a five or 6% weight. Um, analyst conviction is important. You know, you can do all the work and then you sort of say to the analyst, well, it's got a 50% return. What's your level of mm. conviction? And and, you know, you've got the three things here that could go wrong. Um, you know, how do I know they're not going to go wrong? Um, how much work have we done on them? Is there anything else we can do? Um, and, you know, so you, you, do, you do have to sort of weigh up. Are, are we just guessing here and we've got a chance of being wrong or is this an area where we can legitimately add value? Um, and then, as I said before, you kind of want to look at, look at the overall portfolio. You know, if banks are all showing positive alphas, well, I don't necessarily want to have 50% of the portfolio in banks. Um, and like, frankly, you know, a lot of people own banks anyway, um, you know, as, mm. as private investors. And, and we think it's actually a strength of our process that we are looking outside that top 20. And so we kind of blend quite well and bring a set of skills that's a little bit different than what people are when they do when they're building their own, their own portfolios. 
Mm. How about the, the, probably the harder question? So I think not enough time is spent by private investors on portfolio management, um, and in particular the, the kind of the understanding the relationship of risks across a portfolio. So mm. how is this risk of this business correlated to that risk? And if you follow the revenue streams and supply chain, you can t- typically find the answers to those questions. Mm. But one of the things is knowing when to sell. I find that mm. we we talk a lot on podcasts mm. and you know newsletters and in the media about buy, hold, sell, and typically the buyer that gets the most attention, not the sell, unless it's really polarizing. <laughs> how, do you, how do you think about you know, the, the common reasons that you might end up selling a position? If you have examples, that would help. Yeah, sure. Um, well, clearly, the first point is we're guided by valuation, right? So you know, obviously, if a company kind of meets and exceeds our valuation, um, mm-hmm. that's a trigger to sell. And you know, we're, not, we're not afraid. We, we are typically low turnover, um, but we're not afraid to sell a stock. Um, even right. held it for a long time. So, you know, you got. I think you got to be quite disciplined, um, and uh, and you'd be quite conscious of where companies are trading relative to each other and international comps, um, and so forth. But that's. I'm not sure if that's what you're trying to get at because the really hard question is, you know, clearly uh, things go wrong. Um, <laughs> so you sort of, you know, you start with a valuation that's pristine and perfect and a view of the world that um, is perfectly forecastable, um, and you know what typically happens is very quickly you learn that, um, you know, reality is a dynamic equation. (laughs) Things don't go according to plan. Uh, Companies don't do what they say they were going to do. Businesses uh, are more competitive um, than you thought they they were going to be. And so I think really the hard thing is knowing um, what do you do when things go wrong or things don't, don't go, go the way you're expecting, or even when they go right, because you can, you can kind of be lured, into holding a stock for too long thinking oh well this time's different you know it's going so well when really it's just a dog of a cyclical old company that's mm-hmm. going to mean mean reverting time um so you know what so valuation is one thing you know that that keeps us on track um you know you're hit with noise every day and so like you really do have to have a filter um you know that's what point, yeah. what is a what is a genuine kind of game changer for this company and what's just you know, another thing that is, is really immaterial and, and, and I don't need to, to listen to. And it, it sounds like an obvious thing, but, you know, markets are very emotional, you know, like, so, you know, you can get, you can get very attached to companies. And so you, it's not something that you, you really want to do, but you, you know, it's, you, know, you sort of pat yourself on the back when they go up and go and cry when <laughs> they go down and, you know, you can make, make some really terrible decisions. So um, I think, I think a key one is, is, is staying close to the sort of story and you've talked about sort of investment stories in, in this podcast and um, when that story starts to change uh, from management or from a strategic point of view I think it's a, it's a, it can be a tipping point um, mm. I'll give you an example you know like we invested in a company in, in our Australian shares fund uh, Australian pharmaceutical industries and yep. you know we we uh, when Stephen Roach was was managing it and the story was very much organically uh, growth based in the Priceline franchise, and you know the story changed. He 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 subsequently departed, and then the story changed. And but it didn't change overnight. It, it just changed gradually to one that was actually about you know more more cautious growth in Priceline um, and more acquisition uh, focused growth. And they acquired a, a laser skincare business. They actually made a bid for for Sigma. Um, which we struggled to understand because it was a Sigma was trading at a higher multiple than API at the time. And, and these things were sort of uh, warning signs, I guess. And, and we, we probably, we're, you know, I think one of our biases is 
we, re, we try to kind of buy strategically attractive assets up front. And we had a view that uh, Priceline was an attractive franchise. And ultimately it has, you know, this corporate interest obviously in that, in that story now. And, um, you know, I think that position has ended up okay for us, but perhaps we could have put the money to work in a, in a better way elsewhere had we sort of paid attention to some of, some of those signs. So there's an example where I think we probably, I, I was the analyst, I didn't probably pay enough attention to the way the, the story was changing and the pressure that was putting on, on, on the balance sheet ultimately. Mm. Do you as a team and when the analysts pitch ideas, do they write a research note and then present that to you? Yeah, look, so so we we um, we all all the analysts write research notes and, and model uh, companies um, within our valuation system um, before we make an investment. And that's after, of course, the company's gone through our sort of rigorous mm-hmm. ethical um, screening process. But we don't, one thing we don't do is we don't spend a lot of time sitting around as sort of a team of analysts and kind of debating whether we're right or wrong. Like we, we actually place quite a lot of, we give, we've got a team of analysts that are very senior. We've recently hired a more junior analyst, but we've got a, a team of analysts that are very experienced in their sectors. And so we're quite happy for the portfolio manager and the analyst to sort of jointly make an investment. And that, that works best for us when, it, when it's kind of a collaboration between the, the analyst and the PM. Um, I've worked in other teams where you do spend a lot of time as a team kind of debating is, you know, this company XYZ a good franchise or isn't it? Um, and look, that's, that's another way of doing it. I think particularly when you've got a big team or you've got a lot of junior uh, people in that team, that, that can be an important part of your process. But we, we sort of find that we can get through a lot of work this, the way that we do it by sort of trying to streamline that that process and, and look frankly there's always going to be different points of view and what you kind of don't want in a process is people that know the least about a situation but have the loudest voice having yeah. too much influence um, so we, we we try to kind of get the experts in the room and then often often make a reasonably quick decision once the work has been done um, mm, yeah fascinating I like it um, mm. we're going to spend a bit of time in the next episode talking about three companies in particular that um, I know you know very well. So if you're listening to this and you want to hear more of Mike's um, insights and ideas, um, stay tuned for the next episode. But I thought maybe, mate, I would finish with three uh, questions. The same we, same way we started with rapid fire questions, we'll, we'll end um, with, this, with the same. Um, I've already asked you, I guess, which investor you read, but um, maybe another way to ask this is, uh, what is the, the, your favorite book or um, even, I guess, it, going back to like university days or, mm. or you know formative days, what is the, your favourite book on investing, on business, on finance that you've read? Oh, look, I, I just I just go with one of the classics, like you know, the Intelligent Investor. I mean, it's just you could just keep going mm. back to that forever and and not be disappointed. And it, I, I, for me, it's one of those books that you it, it kind of gets you in the right headspace, even when you read it. You know, it's just got such profound wisdom, and you sort of you think, gee, what was I what was I doing yesterday? You know, I was. <laughs> You know, I was, <laughs> wasn't on the right planet. You know, like let's <laughs> let's get let's let's get back to fundamentals here and really anchor anchor ourselves in in sort of how we're going to make money um, mm. from this portfolio. So yeah, I'll, I'll give you that one. Okay, number two is uh, on the ASX. Which company do you think has the strongest brand? The one I'm going to give you there is Cochlear, and I think you know, even though it's not a um, you know like a wide consumer brand in the sense of sort of a Woolworths or something, you know, if you're implanting something into your head. Um, there's obviously an incredible uh, level of importance that it works and it's safe and it, you know, and they're, you know, they're just an outstanding company. They've 
they, they don't they don't cut any corners. They've reinvested in their business. Um, they continue to reinvest in their business. Got had excellent management teams um, through time, and and you know they get it right now. Look, so it's, it's always it's always available on a high PE. Um, it sort of manages mm. to grow grow into that PE through time. But you know it's a it's a quality company. Mm, I agree. Okay, mm. final one then. Uh, who is the best CEO you've come across? Look, I'm going to give you another healthcare example. Um, I think Brian McNamee at CSL, you know, was an extraordinary CEO. And I'm always interested in CEOs where, um, you know, things don't always go right. You know, you kind of think of CS, the, CS, the company CS, CSL is now. Mm. And, but, you know, there were certainly times when they made some of the acquisitions that set them up um, for their current success. Um, they didn't work initially, right? You know, they made, they made, they had currencies moving against them. They were under enormous pressure as a management team for having potentially destroyed a lot of capital. Um, but then you kind of look back now at the journey they've been on in terms of consolidating their global leader leadership position you know, in, in the plasma industry. The way that industry has been innovative through time and continued to build, it's not, it's not just the fact that they've consolidated the industry, actually the product development um, that's gone on and they've been at the, at the leading edge of that and then into the flu space and, you know, they've obviously acquired another business more recently. Um, but, you know, those initial plays are very bold plays. Um, they had risk um, and, you know, and, and they've delivered. So, you know, that, that, that's my, mm. my suggestion. No, I like it. I like it. Mike, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show today. Um, for those listeners who want to hear more from Mike and, and see what the team are invested in, you can head to australianethical.com.au. There's a link in your podcast player. Uh, you can click that and it'll take you to the uh, landing page for the High Conviction Fund. And it trades on the CBOE um, under the ticket code AEAE, which is easy to remember. Um, we've talked about uh, you know, what's the best investment you've ever made? And um, you graciously said that it was Australian ethical shares that you bought around a dollar, which which um, that will get you some praise um, from, from the top brass, I'm sure. Uh, we talked about how the process comes together through, I guess, the prism of looking at these things like a, the business model balance sheet, fundamental valuation and expected return uh, and how you weight things in the portfolio. You've brought some great examples to the, to the show as well, mate. So thanks for joining me on this episode. Our listeners will be back uh, next week with another episode with Mike. So, Appreciate your time, mate. Thank you very much, Owen. Good to speak with you.